Good morning. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity, and I just want to add my welcome to that of Ron and Lanes. If you're new here, we're so glad that you are here. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16 or look on in your bulletin, we have a long passage in front of us. So let's get to it. Exodus 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of, the, out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and they bred worms and stank. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, you invite us to taste and see that you are good. And so, Lord, we come to you hungry. Would you feed us by the bread of heaven? In Christ's name, amen. We are currently in the season of Lent, that time when the church prepares herself for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The 40 days of Lent are modeled after the 40-day wilderness temptation of Jesus, a sojourning that itself is modeled after the 40-year wanderings of Israel. And so this Lent, we are walking that wilderness with Israel. And today, Israel has a hunger problem. If you remember last week, the Lord miraculously turned bitter waters sweet. And we left Israel camped out at an oasis with 12 springs and 70 palms, a symbol of completion and rest. And now they've left the oasis for the wilderness of sin. Last week, water was the problem, and now it's food. Have you ever eaten in the wilderness? Have you ever feasted in the darkness? One of the most memorable meals that I've ever had was at a restaurant by the name of Noir. Noir. The subtitle was Dining in the Dark. And indeed, this was a restaurant in which you ate in pitch black darkness. I've never seen so much darkness. (laughs) Nothing. The way that it worked was the waiters were blind. And so they would come when it was your turn, and you would put your hands on their shoulders, and all the rest of the guests would put their hands on your, you'd make this little train, and you'd walk in behind this curtain, and it was pitch black. You could not see a thing. You could hear things, you couldn't see anything. And the waiter would sit you down, being very sure that you're not going to miss your chair, making sure that your hand goes on the table. It was this bizarre moment of having to be led through every moment that you would ordinarily take for granted. And then he began to bring us our food. And the menu, we didn't know what the menu was. So it was this incredible experience of tasting. And in the absence of light, all you're relying so much on every other sense. What does this smell like? What does this taste like? Do you know what it's like 
to eat in the darkness. Well, this morning, the Lord invites us to a feast in the darkness, a feast in the wilderness. This morning, God's word proclaims this, that contrary to our fears, the Lord forms and fills us with his feast in the wilderness. Contrary to our fears, the Lord forms and fills us with his feast in the wilderness. So let's first address our fears. That's point one. Well, the people of Israel, they immediately begin to grumble, and they have this complaint in verse 3. It says, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, if you remember from last week, the chief sin of the wilderness trials is this grumbling and complaining. And here the grumbling pertains to food. Now, before we write them off, listen, this is a valid concern. The wilderness is a place where food is hard to come by. The wilderness is a place barren. And so it's a legitimate concern. Where is the food going to come from? But I don't want you to miss the fear that underlies this grumbling. They are looking at their circumstances, wondering if they are going to get what they need. They are afraid, and they're they're afraid that they're not going to make it. And these hungry people are feeding on fear. And it comes out in this really dramatic, hyperbolic complaint. Like, they come on... They come out of DEFCON 5, right? We are going to die. But I know that you know what it's like to chew on fear and anxiety. To look out at a wilderness and wonder, where, how am I going to make it? Where's the next meal going to come from? You're anxious about so many things. You're anxious about what's happening in your body or what could happen in your body. You're afraid that your work and your life won't matter. You're afraid that you might end up alone. You're afraid that you will be marginalized or overlooked or abandoned. Or you're afraid that your children won't turn out okay. You're afraid that the madness of war is going to spread. Some of you don't know that you're anxious. But your body knows. Your friends know. Your family knows. And when we are afraid, we do and say crazy things. Now, fear metabolizes in two ways here in this complaint in verse 3. First, they romanticize the past. The land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Really? Is that in your Bible? That's not how I remember Egypt. It's one big golden corral. That's some dramatic revisionist history. What what I remember is slavery, genocide, infanticide. You see, fear projects this golden era that never existed. It can enslave you to the past. It warps our perception of the past and the present. They are about to miss what God is going to do in their midst because they're so focused on this nostalgic past that never existed. Existed. 
The second thing they do that fear does is they make an absurd accusation. They point the finger at Moses and say, you brought us out here to die. They're accusing the Lord not only of gross neglect, but of premeditated murder. That selective memory causes them to forget what God has just done. Just days ago, we crossed the Red Sea. I saved you from Egypt. And they're convinced now. Their fear has them convinced that God is going to let them die. It's absurd. When we're afraid, we want a culprit, a scapegoat for why our life is not right. And we will accuse our parents, our friends, our spouses, whoever we can, that they're the ones that are making our life something other than it should be. You're the problem. Some of you don't even know it, but you have accused the Lord of terrible things, of withholding what you really wanted, what you needed. And friends, that's exactly what the serpent did in the garden of Eden. He accuses the Lord of withholding. No matter that God gave every tree to Adam and Eve for food to eat, except for one. There was one tree. The serpent points out that one tree. He doesn't reference the generous gratuity of the Lord. He points out the one. He says in Genesis 3, 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No matter that Adam and Eve were already like God, created in the image and likeness of God, you see his, his lie, his revisionist history. And they end up making this terrible accusation against God that you have not given me what I need. And in their fear, they disobey. Friends, this Lenten season, Jesus is inviting us to reckon with our fears and to turn away from them. But contrary to our feeds, God to our fears, God feeds and forms us in the wilderness. That leads us to our second point that God forms us. He forms us. Even as they cast dispersions on God's intentions and his character, God hears their grumbling and he moves towards to action. They want meat and bread. So the Lord provides meat and bread. And he does it with style, raining it from heaven. In other words, he wants to make it utterly unmistakable that this is the Lord's provision. God's grace is going to literally rain from the sky. But verse 4 also indicates that this bread from heaven is also a test. It says, whether they will walk in my law or not. There's a stipulation to this miraculous provision, a stipulation with two parts. Here they are. First, the Lord will provide bread each day, and each person was welcome to gather whatever he or she needed. But they were not to gather more than just that day's bread. This is a test of trust. Are you going to trust that the bread will be there tomorrow? And the second stipulation is a call to rest, a test of rest. Every day the people are to go out and gather a day's worth of bread except for the sixth day. And that day they gathered two days worth because the seventh day is one of rest. In verse 23 it says, 
Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Now, this is the first mention of the Sabbath in the Bible. It will appear four chapters later in the Ten Commandments as the fourth. And you might imagine that the Sabbath originated in some bucolic, some agricultural setting, right? This be like, let's just take one day off. We've got so much here. But no, God institutes the Sabbath in the wilderness. That's where he tells his people, I want you to rest in me. Brothers and sisters, that's the environment we're least likely to rest. Right? The wilderness is where we'll overwork. We want to get out of the wilderness, or we want to make this wilderness into something that is more bearable. And so we are tempted to overwork. And yet God says, I want you to rest in the wilderness. And this is really a test about control, isn't it? You see, when we are afraid, we grasp for control. We will take things into our own hands. Again, some of you might say, I'm not anxious or afraid. Really? Then why do you have such a white-knuckled grasp on your spouse or on your kids or on your life? on your diet, you are overworking, or how are you sleeping, how are you living? And you know what happened to the manna when the people didn't follow God's command? They said, that's great, God, we're going we're gonna to take us into our own hands. As you see in verse 20, it says, the manna bread worms and stank, stank. That's a word in your Bible, Stank. Isn't that a great word? And it describes so accurately the parts of our lives where we do not give up control to God. It stinks. It's all sorts of dysfunction. You see, in the wilderness, God is testing. He is forming his people to trust him. This test is not for God. It's for the people. It's for us that we might see just how controlling we truly are and to turn away from that to God. And this pattern of manna, it tests them for 40 years. How about that for a formation and instruction? Each day proves to Israel that God is going to provide and he'll do the same tomorrow. Do you see the grace of our Lord that he meets us in the midst of our fears by providing for us? It's reflected in, in our prayer. Israel is learning to pray. Give us today our daily bread, aren't they? Brothers and sisters, you can taste rest in the midst of the wilderness. You see, our rest is not dependent on circumstances. Our rest is dependent on faith. If you want rest to taste peace, you have to give up control to the Lord, who has always been in control. It's counterintuitive, isn't it, that what you need most in your fear and anxiety is to affirm that you are not in control. And relinquishing control is actually the most humble and humane thing that you can do in fear. 
That's what it means to be human. It's to know that you are not in control, but you know who is. And he is good to you. Because our point three is that God fills us. God fills us. He forms us and he fills us. Friends, we not only taste rest in the wilderness, we can actually be filled and satisfied in the wilderness. In verse 18 it says, Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. There are very few stories in the Bible where someone is left hungry. Do you know that? Almost every time when God banquets with his people, they go home filled. Which is a deep consolation for me. Because I hate eating at night's restaurants because they never give you the big enough portions. But God also includes a promise of a future filling. Because what happens in our fear? Fear is so future-oriented, isn't it? Okay, I have this today, but what about tomorrow? And it's interesting because when I hear your anxieties about the future, it's rarely, God is rarely in your anxieties in the future. Our future projections and prognostications tend to be pretty atheistic, right? There's no God. It's purely horizontal. But God knows that a fearful people need the promise of future filling. And he gave them a taste of it on their very tongues, We see in verse 31 that the manna tasted like wafers made with honey. Honey. You know what that means? You know why that's in there? Honey. It was a foretaste of the promised land. A land of milk and honey. In other words, God says, I'm giving you a taste of the promised land now. So you know where you're going. You know that I will fill you then. Every bite of manna was intended to be a promise of a future feast. Which leads us to our fourth point, his feast. Why does God provide the manna? You see, we view this story from the perspective of the people with our stomachs, right? God fed them. They were hungry and he fed them. But what is God's perspective? What is he trying to do? And he tells us this in verse 12. He says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He rains bread and meat on his people that the people might know that he is God. And that word know, this is not some abstract intellectual understanding of faith, like I know that London, England exists. The Hebrew here means a deep and intimate, deeply intuitive and convicted knowledge. This relational. God wants his people to know him, to delight in him, to taste him. Adam knew his wife, the same Hebrew word. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's this knowledge. God wants us to know him intimately. This is a deep-hearted and full-body knowledge that the Lord is God. Some of you friends, you know about God. But do you know God? Do you know, have you tasted him? What is my point? 
My point is that the Lord wants his people to taste and to know him. And he prepares a feast for his people in the wilderness. But he is the feast. Do you see that? He is the feast in the wilderness. This is not just a story about bread. It's about feasting in and on the Lord. And that's important because Israel misses this. They miss this. They think that this is about food. And it is. But it's about so much more than food. Alexander Schmemann puts it aptly. He says, in the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live, is given to him by God. And it is given as communion with God. Man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. And all desire is finally a desire for him. You see, the wilderness is a place of hunger, of desire. It's a place where our desires are heightened. And really, maybe it's just a place where our awareness of our desires are heightened. Because in the wilderness, there are fewer distractions. We feel our restlessness and our cravings have this sharpness to them. What are you craving this morning? Like, what are you hungry for? Hunger is always a metaphor for something deeper, desires that lie at the very core of who we are. What is the meditation of your heart this morning? What is making you anxious? What are you coveting? What are you scheming about or stewing on? What guilt or shame are you chewing on? What bitterness lingers on your tongue? What if all that desire was meant to point you to God, to the fullest satisfaction? You see, this is exactly what Jesus claimed the day after the miracle of the bread and fish. This story is in John 6. And many years after wilderness, Jesus, you probably know the story, takes a boy's five loaves and two fish, and he miraculously feeds a multitude of thousands. It says the crowd ate, quote, as much as they wanted. There it is again, satisfaction. And they come after Jesus. But Jesus confronts them, and he says, he says this, he says, you are seeking me because I fed you. But this is not really about bread. Don't you see that? It's never really been about bread. And then he makes this stunning claim. He says in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see what the bread is? You see how it's really about the Lord Jesus? And to those who thought they misheard, he clarifies in verse 55. He says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. In other words, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I want you to know that I am the Lord your God. 
That's the reason I fed you. It's because I am the satisfaction that you are seeking. That hunger is a sign and symbol of your spiritual life. And I am the one who uniquely can fulfill it. And just as the glory of the Lord came down in the wilderness to feed the people, in Jesus, God has come down himself to feed his people. And did you hear that he gives his very flesh and blood as the feast? Friends, the cross is the fullest answer to fear that we could ever fathom. For those of you who fear the worst, the worst has already happened in the cross. And yet he did that. He suffered for you. He gave his flesh and his blood because he loves you. Because he loves you. He was the truest provision of man's most desperate need to be reconciled to God. And the cross is the ultimate symbol of the self-giving love of our God. He says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Paul explains the assurance the cross gives us in our fear. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him us up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen? Do you see what God has given you? There is no need to fear. There is no need to fear. I want to end with some practical thoughts on how we might feed on Christ. What does it mean to feed on Christ? And the first one, I'd be remiss not to give this in this passage, is rest. Is rest. Some of you need to repent of your overwork. Some of you, your scheduling is sinful. Repentance is not just saying sorry. It's, it's living different. Because all of us need rest. All of us need rest. And, re- and I'm not talking about rest like sitting and watching Netflix at the end of the day. That's not rest. You see, rest is carving out time for the Lord, of being in his presence and his word. And you need at least a whole day of rest, the scriptures say, over and over again. But you also need these Sabbath moments in every day to confirm who is the Lord. Who is the Lord of your life? And second of all, so rest. Also, we need to daily savor Christ. Anyone a mindless eater here? It's so easy to mindlessly read your Bible or pray the daily liturgy. That's not how we feast on the Lord. We feast by savoring the Lord Jesus in our hearts and our minds. In the Bible, the closest analogy to worship is feasting. Worship is feasting. Worship, savoring him. Savoring his, ta- his taste, his excellency and beauty. We meditate in our minds and our hearts. That is, chew on. What are the things that he's done for you? What are his promises to you? And finally, we share with others. You see, it's only natural to share about our good meals, isn't it? Isn't that what Instagram is for? I know so many of you love to talk about your favorite restaurants here at Charlottesville. You love to talk why your bagel at Bodo's is the best. 
or which of the thousand French bakeries here is your favorite? How much more should the excellencies of our Lord Jesus be on our tongues? Back in that restaurant, pitch dark, there, were, there was a way in which all of my other senses were enlivened. As I'm putting something in my mouth, I have no idea what it is. And there's this slowness to chewing, tasting, feeling it in my mouth. It's one of the most memorable meals I have ever had. And friends, that is what Jesus, that is what we're called to do in the darkness, is to let him guide us into the darkness and to let him feed us to savor him, to savor his presence with us. Friends, here is the true antidote to the crippling fear that we live, live in. It's feast. Feast on the Lord. That taste, the taste of his sweetness, his gracious provision to us day after day, his invitation to rest even in the wilderness, the feast and the table he lays before us overwhelms our senses so that that fear recedes into the background. Feast yourself on him. His perfect love will cast out fear. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you say, again, you invite us, and you say, taste and see the Lord is good. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus, we would savor him. Thank you that you are sweet. And would you give us these tastes of the promise that we will get to the promised land. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.